Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. What is crowd psychology? How does it affect individuals and groups in large crowds such as protests? Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, believes that crowd behavior, sometimes called mob psychology, leads to unlocking the unconscious mind in becoming identified with a group mentality in the slogans or modifications of a charismatic leader. More contemporary theories of crowd behavior, such as psychologist Philip Zimbardo's idea, where he claims that anonymity and group unity can persuade people to lose their concern for others and reduce their sensitivity to guilt, remorse, and self-evaluation. In today's podcast, we will talk about the power of suggestion and how it functions in close relationships in public spaces. If you wonder how and why antisocial behavior and lack of forethought can overtake people in large protests or mass movements, today is the podcast for you. So welcome, Polly. Today we have a wonderful guest with us. We have psychiatrist Robert Caper, and Robert is the author of three books and numerous articles on psychoanalysis. He has lectured in countries all around the world and currently resides in New York City and Vermont, where he practices and teaches. And in the fall, his new book, Beyond, Beyond and Thoughts Too Deep for Words, Psychoanalysis, Suggestion, and the Language of the Unconscious, was published, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you, Robert, for joining us today. And so, Polly, I'm going to pass the mic to you in terms of where you want to step in with helping our listeners understand crowd psychology. Okay. Hi, Eleanor. Hi, Robert. Hello, Polly. Nice to have you with us here in Vermont. So I thought I'd start with just talking about the kinds of mass movements that we've seen in this recent time, both the protests, you know, the anti-racism protests, BLM, and then the protests against lockdown that are going on in Europe right now. And all of these protests there will be some aspect of uh, people's behavior that, that moves more towards rioting or violence or sometimes damaging property. And uh, I thought if we would just start with that to say, is there anything in the theory of suggestion, Robert, that you're writing about that could help us understand why some individuals or maybe even large numbers of individuals might sort of turn against their personal ideals not to harm others or even against their 
idea for the protest to simply make a statement and, and, you know, become violent or become, let's say, antisocial in their approach to the, the protest. We have all of us seen reports. We've seen it in the news. We've seen people breaking windows. We've seen people, you know, coming up against the police with various kinds of pushing and shoving or, you know, provoking, but particularly um, damage to property and damage sometimes to, to other people. And sometimes the police also seem to act like they, they are rioting back. They beat people up. They club people. I'm saying that we've all seen this on the news. It's not my report. I've seen videos. Everybody has. I mean, it's not a secret. So that what is it that brings people in a crowd situation where there is a mass protest? Not a, I'm not talking about a protest that would be inherently a nonviolent, quiet, you know, sort of silent protest where people, as they did in the time of civil rights movement or early, you know, protests for women's rights. Although some of the protests against the Vietnam War had these same kinds of slogans and statements in them um, that would bring people around to, you know, doing things that they hadn't intended, to beating up other people or whatever. And I'm not by any means saying that this happens only to protesters. I'm saying that it happens, you know, to people in crowds when there are slogans, and also to police in crowds when people provoke them, that people end up doing something that they hadn't intended to do. And I know Zimbardo has a few theory about this. I know Freud had a theory. I know Jung had theories about it, like why crowds can lead to people doing things that are go against their conscience. Thank you for the clarification, because I think it is important to distinguish political protest from mob violence. Um, Although sometimes they can't be distinguished because uh, things happen that are violent when there are protests. And it's, again, I don't, I was just, you know, talking to Diana Johnson about the yellow vest protests in France and the violence of the police against them. I'm sure that the police weren't instructed to shoot out people's eyes, but they weren't being careful. They dropped their conscience. And that happens in mass movements when people are together in large crowds. And again, going back to Freud, going back to Jung, going back to many accounts, uh, including Zimbardo's accounts of people acting in large groups. Well, Polly, if I may yeah. say, you said in the, in the introduction that I read that it leads to unlocking the unconscious mind and becoming identified with group mentality. Mm -hmm. I think that was I think, Freud's view. Yes, but I think that's also a very interesting thing to explore. It helps us in understanding. The well, I was just wondering if it. there was a way that suggestion, you know, li is linked up with unlocking the unconscious mind in the way Freud was talking about it, which wouldn't be a way we'd talk about it now. But that there, because Freud's idea was that in the deeper unconscious mind are pretty uncivilized impulses, and those impulses aren't typically a part of our behavior because we have a conscience. But most people don't think in terms of these levels of unconscious, you know, the unconscious mind now. I can say something about suggestion. I've just written a book about suggestion, but the book is not about group psychology, or mm. let alone mob psychology. Mm -hmm. 
I uh, I cite some work by Wilfred Bion, not in order to say anything about group psychology, even though his work was on groups, but I'm using his work on groups to shed light on individual psychology. Okay. I think the, the, the people that you're talking about are using individual psychology to explain the behavior of groups, and I'm using the behavior of groups to shed some light on individual psychology. Okay, but I, I think with Zimbardo and with Freud, they were actually trying to understand something like emotional contagion in a group. And so they were talking about something that happens when we're in groups that maybe puts a pressure on us to do and say things more collectively. And yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, what, you know, in talking about group psychology that way, it might be different from talking about suggestions with suggestion with individuals, but let's start with individuals. Well, How suggestion works. You know. My interest in is not in group psychology, and uh, it's in a specific experiment that was done at the Tavistock Institute just after the Second World War. And I can talk about that and and try to show you how I'm how I'm using that. Sure, and then maybe we'll the see book. if it seems to apply in groups. Okay, so here's the setup. The psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion, a British psychoanalyst, was in the military in both the First World War and the Second World War. In the Second World War, he was in charge of a committee that was responsible for selecting officer candidates because they had to expand their officer corps, obviously, because there was a huge war going on. And he was in charge of a committee whose job it was to select good candidates for military officers. And he published a paper about that. They were called training groups. And he was also in charge of a psychiatric hospital where soldiers who were suffering from uh, what was then called combat fatigue or, or shell shock and would now be called PTSD could be rehabilitated. There was no, the facilities for treating them individually were just not available. There just wasn't weren't enough resources, psychiatrists to go around. So he treated them in groups that were structured very much like the military groups that they had just come from. So he wanted to sort of restore discipline and, and use a simulation of a military group to see how they responded and to get an idea of what was keeping them from being able, being able to fight, basically. The idea was to get them back fighting. So he got a reputation for, being, for doing these groups. After the war, he went to the Tavistock Institute in London, which was a concern with research and treatment of, at first, children and families, and, and later on, adults. And so, as he put it, he said he had a reputation of being good with groups. And so they asked him to do groups at the Tavistock. Uh, and this was re a, a sort of a research project. So he did, he set, he set his group up in the following way. He advertised on the bulletin board for the staff. He said he's starting a group whose purpose it was to study its own behavior. If you're interested, you know, sign here and we're going to meet, you know, 6.30 Monday evenings and following group. Thank you very much. He signed it. 
So they assembled a group in this way. Now, it's important. The task of the group, it was not a therapy group. And it wasn't a group, it wasn't like a, a, a board of a corporation or it wasn't a scientific advisory. It was a group with a very specific purpose to study its own behavior. And what he found uh, in these groups was that people would look to him to give him an idea of what they were supposed to be doing. From his point of view, he'd already told them what they were supposed to be doing, so he didn't say anything. And the tension would grow in the group. Sooner or later, someone in the group would take over and say, okay, well, I, here's what I proposed we do. Here's how I propose we're here to study ourselves, and here's how I propose we do it. And that didn't, and people sort of looked, and didn't really listen, didn't really take it that seriously, because, and he realized that the only person they really had any interest in at all was him. The only person anybody was going to listen to was the famous Dr. Beyond, who was good with groups. So from, from this, he got the idea of what he called a basic assumption. There's a, there were a lot more experiences, and he, he wrote it in a, it's published in a book called Experiences in Groups. So what is the basic assumption? Because he looks like he's the leader, because he's called the group together with a particular purpose, and he seems to have expertise in that purpose. So on paper, it looks like he's the leader. So people come to the group. He thinks he's directing them to do something that they're not doing. And instead, they're looking to him to help them do something. Well, he he asked them to study their own behavior in a group. Right. That's what he asked them to do. But then they didn't do that. No, they didn't do that. Right. And this was the behavior. The behavior of the group was to not do that, mm -hmm. but instead look to him. He didn't say, come here and I'll give you lectures on groups. Right. He said, come here and we will study our behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. But they looked to him right. to tell them how to do that. Because he appeared to be an expert or a leader. Right? Well, he was an expert. Right. Okay. But his expertise consisted of not leading the group. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. That was the experimental <laughs> setup because he wanted to see what happened when people get into a group, any group. The basic assumption was one of them was looking to him to give them direction. Could we call him a leader there? Because it's not just looking to Beyond or Dr. Beyond, it's looking to somebody. Well, various people would assume, would assume leadership in the group when he failed, quote, failed to do so. But when he left the room? No, 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 he was still there. No, I know, but... But they were disappointed. But when he, well, he would then have to leave the room to find out what would happen when he was not there. No, no, he was there, and the person who was taking the lead, the person the group's attention would be directed to, could be somebody else. And he called that, at that point, uh, that other person was what he would call the leader of the group, right? Okay, so he is an observer then. He's always an observer. Okay. Yeah. And the leader of the group would propose different solutions. You know, someone might uh, you know, just take the opportunity to say what was on their mind and complain about something that was going on at the Institute. And then somebody else would join in with another complaint. And another, and, someone, and so it would become a kind of group. And their, their focus at that point was on complaint because they were disappointed with Beyond because he wasn't telling them what to do. So they would... But as long as we're here, we might as well talk about something. And it turned out to be a lot of complaints about the group. So the 
the group had then transformed from the first basic assumption, which we called dependence, because they were all depending on him to tell them what to do and, and to kind of get things going. The leader had then shifted from a basic assumption dependency group to what he called a basic assumption fight-flight group, where there's an enemy outside and everybody's banding together to unite against the enemy, which was the institution, naturally. I'm not, I say naturally because people are always complaining about conditions where they work. Uh, it's a natural thing. At, at other times, two members of the group would start a dialogue with each other, and everybody's attention would be wrapped on the dialogue, and nobody would contribute. And the dialogue was something that anybody could contribute to, but everyone else would just listen. And he called this the pairing group, the basic assumption pairing group, where the idea was that, uh, you know, if you just sit around and wait long enough, this couple will come up with a solution that you're looking for. You know? And I talked about him being the leader or someone else being leader, but what he ended up concluding was that the, the, the leader of these groups, the basic assumption groups, was an idea. The group was being dominated by an idea. One idea was there's a god, a, a, you know, one individual you can depend on to, you know, and if you just sort of are patient enough and, and pay enough attention enough and implore him enough, he'll eventually solve your problems, <laughs> okay? The second uh, basic assumption was what he called a fight-flight basic assumption idea. And the, idea, the basic assumption idea in, in that mode was that there's an enemy, an external enemy, and that the group's business, if the group could just band together and attack the enemy, then we'd really be doing something, we'd be doing something important. So everyone was sort of caught up in that. And he used the same examples that Freud did in his paper on groups to uh, illustrations of a group. The basic assumption dependency group was, was like a church, where there was a god, you worship a god. The basic assumption fight-flight was like the military, where the idea was if we can just strategize well enough and apply violence or maybe the threat of violence in the, quite the right way, then we're, then we're going to get somewhere. That's the way to get ahead. Now, what interested me about this was the fact that this basic assumption idea was completely unconscious. And yet, it could unite the group. The group would come together when one of these was affected, and, and the emotional life, the um, group would, be, would come alive emotionally when one of these basic assumption ideas was predominant, was being enacted, so to speak. But that nobody knew, that nobody had organized it, nobody had arranged it, nobody had agreed to proceed this way, it just happened all by itself. Mm -hmm. When there's no leader, and now if Beyond had taken the role of expert, he had played out, yeah, I'm the expert, and this is what happens, and all that. That would have just sort of solidified the group around him as the god. Right? So in Jungian terminology, these are archetypes. They're, right. they're, they're not, they're, they're forms that are unconscious, that are waiting to come into experience in the right situation. So that each one of those, the god one, the fight flight one or the sort of parental one the other one whether it's a pair and they're going to you know tell you what to do that i mean maybe he's not saying that's a parental organization no, that's the messiah messiah that's, the, the pair. that's what he called the pairing group that this pair of people would get together and they would produce an offspring of some kind okay an intellectual offspring like jesus which would, would be like act like a messiah and solve the problems of the group 
So these are archetypes. The thing about the Messiah is, the important thing about the Messiah is that he's always in the future. He never arrives. Mm -hmm. But the anticipation is everything. Mm -hmm. Gives you hope. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it seems like these basic assumptions that you're describing all function in a protest. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Because, you know, there's a God. There's somebody that that could solve this. And then, of course, there are enemies. Yeah. And then there's something that's saving, but it's not here. So, you know, I remember like the, the Vietnam War protests that I was in did have chants like, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? That were very provocative. And yet they were aimed at LBJ as though he could have solved the whole thing. You know, and the idea was that it wasn't us that was making war on Vietnam. It was the military or the government. It was somebody else that was really making this war. And then the notion was that in the future, there could be peace and love if the baby boomers could grow up and take care of everything, you know. So, I mean, I think now with, with Black Lives Matter or with the protests against the lockdown, Again, you can see these themes that you're describing, you know, because there'll be an attack on an individual who's supposedly in control, you know, like Trump, or there are enemies who is supposedly doing this thing to us, like world governance is locking us down. Do you see see how that does apply? Yeah, I I can see it, and, you know, but in a way, I think there's... But I interrupted your flow because you were going beyond, towards beyond that's such a good idea. And it was the misfortune of the idea to become to become too widely accepted and, and too popular because you mean a lot of group psychology is is actually you know it's actually founded on the Tavistock group idea. Yeah, yeah, he was not he was not very enthusiastic about having that happen. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He had, he he didn't make a big deal out of it because he realized that these things take a life of their own. And there's nothing you can do about well, it. Well, you know, there are archetypes like that, too. <laughs> but, you know, but so it has happened. I mean, and groups are studied. So the, the examples you're talking about are very complicated. You can't just say, well, this is a basic assumption in action because there are real reality factors. Mm-hmm. There are various other factors, personality factors. People have their history with each other. Mm-hmm. They belong to all kinds of, each one belongs to a number of other groups. There's this intersection of all these subgroups. So it's not a clean way of studying basic assumption mentality. It's, no, it's not an experiment. I mean, it's not, it's not a setup. I know, but controlled. to say, well, this is basic assumption mentality, you know, is like saying um, it's a study in leadership, for example, or it's a study in how political movements get started, or it's a study in war and peace, or it's a study in state power versus individual power. You can look at it, and all of those are true. The The beauty of beyond setup is that all of that was, it was clean. It all was, of that it was, was clean, except... The job had, the, the group had zero responsibility to anybody. Well, but there's one thing that's not clean about the setup, is that beyond is in the room. And so he never removes himself from the room to see what the group would do if he weren't there because he has, he has called them together and he is the expert. Right. So it's not without some, let's say, provocation. 
that they look to him for leadership. Right, but it's a minimal provocation aside from not, not attending the group. There's nothing he can, he can do about that. What's, what's impressive about his work, you're right, the group will treat him one way or another. He will be a, an object of special interest no matter what. Right. right. What struck him was how little it takes. As a matter of fact, you know, we talk about charisma, right? There are charismatic leaders and leaders that people look up to because they have this special power. What his work indicates is that it's not the charisma is not a property of a leader. That you can take the most uncharismatically, you can take somebody who sits there like a lump on a log, and if the group has it in their heads that this is a leader, and that this then he's going to tell us what to do, for example, they will believe that regardless of how of how uncharismatic or unleaderly the leader is. Yeah, he's he's nominated as the leader. But he did nothing, I mean literally zero, in the way of behavior that would approach any conventional idea of leadership. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's the group. It's a it's a function of the it's group. group. It's not yeah. a function of the yeah. Group. yeah. I mean, yeah. there's an element also in the group that always fascinated me, which is the unpredictability, which I think has to do with all the different com- the complexity, all the difference that's within the group, and there's just a kind of unpredictability of how it's going to unfold, and and we try to contain it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so if we're committed to, say, a nonviolent, creative way of doing it versus we want to go in and be agitators and use violence. But there is a certain kind, of, and I feel today right now that unpredictability is, is, is more heightened mm-hmm. than before because we've lost commonality. Well, I'm not sure we ever had that. And maybe we never had you know, I mean, thought I think we, we had did. fantasies of it. Yeah. The, Idea again. The, yeah, yeah, the thing that it seems like from Beyond's kind of group psychology, I would say, even though you say that, you know, crowds or any crowd or any group is not what Beyond was studying, it's true, he had a more contained situation. Something that's well known in the military, because I worked in a military college for 13 years and I worked with their leadership development, they are very aware of exactly what you're saying that the person who is in the role of leader, the one who is said to be the leader of the platoon or of the brigade or whatever, may or may not be the leader. It doesn't depend on that person's personality as much as it does the situation. And there might be something in a situation so that somebody else ends up actually organizing the group. And then there may be something else where the group never gets organized, even though there's a leader present. Well, the leader, in, in Beyond's terms, the de facto leader, if not the nominal leader, mm-hmm. but the de facto leader is the person who best embodies the basic assumption idea that is active at the moment. So that if the basic assumption idea is, is dependency, or there's a God, then the leader will be the person with the most faith in that idea, who is, who, who is really an example of faith to all the others, that will be the leader. It's the idea that selects the leader, not the leader that instills mm-hmm. the idea yeah. in the group. Mm-hmm. That it's, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, and in these, I want to go back to the, the protests that are happening now, and because I know there are a number of them, uh, protests against lockdown in Europe right now, 
And I was reading about it last night that in, you know, over the weekend, 150 people were arrested in London at a protest that was quite violent, ended up being quite violent, where people turned against the police, the police turned against them, and so on. I think that in that group situation, even in a large, massive group, there are still basic assumptions. I think sometimes there's an assumption that there's one person who's in control. Now, there might be an assumption even that there's someone in control of the protest. Like, you know, you had organizers in the past. There might be that, or there might be the assumption that somebody is in control of the lockdown and we need to protest to that person. Or that there is somebody that we're against, that we need to actually go against. And I think that when people are in a group, like a protest, I don't think they're there simply to see what's going on. I don't think many people just come out of curiosity. I think people come largely because they want to do something. And once they get into the group, I think there is something. Now, see, from a, from a Jungian point of view, these basic assumptions are archetypes. In other words, they're not written down anywhere. They're not known specifically. But in particular situations, they organize. They organize people to act in certain ways or to perceive certain things. Yeah. And I think that um, in, this, in the current situation, I think we do have just a handful of these archetypes operating. And that some of them have to do with the idea that there's somebody in charge, like Trump, or there is somebody that is, you know, is making this bad thing happen, like a world governance group, or that there is somebody that is keeping us back, like uh, that is, you know, keeping us from doing what we want to do. Yeah, like the, the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization. And so I do think those basic assumptions are, are in the protest groups. And I think one of the reasons why you see violence breaking out is that I think that following that basic assumption, just like people got agitated when Beyond didn't say anything in the group, when he was passive, when he wouldn't do anything, they got agitated. I think that in groups, in large groups, people get agitated easily when they can't find a leader, something to protest against or whatever. And so then they start either attacking or trying to enlist people around them. You know, I, I don't think that most of the time people in large groups or even in small groups can just behave. I've seen it in small groups, certainly. And I've been in enough protests to realize that there, there are going to be people who are going to be very agitated and they're not going to behave according to the rules. Well, also you have the piece that people are very disappointed and dissatisfied and angry and rageful. I mean, at what's going, whatever that is out whatever there that they, they're against, yeah. but that people are really, today, they're really, really upset. I mean, the, the kind of, you can, it's like a white heat almost. Well, yeah, I mean, we've all been There's, locked down. Yeah. People aren't working. There, there yeah. are like, you know, people tens are really of millions concerned. of people yeah. not working. But I, I, I don't think any of this is conscious in a group. I don't think people go into the protest saying, I'm going to be angry or I'm going to carry out violence or going in saying, you know, I'm going to make a real change. Uh, I think that they're going because they feel strongly. But, you know, I, I certainly saw in the anti-war protests, I saw a lot of violence break out. 
and I saw it break out in situations where it didn't make a lot of sense, you know, where somebody started pushing somebody else or pushing up against well, the police or something. But they weren't thinking, I'm going to be violent could I, could I interject yeah. something here? Yeah. Well, two things. One is just a kind of curious, a curious aside. You were talking about young archetypes. Mm -hmm. The three types of group organization, basic assumption group organization that Bian was talking about, dependency, fight, flight, and pairing, That's right. correspond to Freud's original stages of psychosexual development. Dependency, oral, fighting, anal, and uh, genital, pairing. Okay. Just, just as an aside. So Bian did not say this, but I'm, I'm maybe somebody so else. So what would your point be there? Well, you're, you're taking it back to these old ideas of archetypes, but there's another old idea that this, this sort of corresponds well, to. I, I, so think, yeah, I think Freud and Jung were definitely working off each other, yeah. and when he did his psychosocial oh, sure, stages of development, sure that was were. just after Jung had done archetypes. So, you know, he was, he was yeah, I mean, I, but I think both Freud and Jung knew that there were unthought knowns. That's what Christopher Ballas calls them. That we something we don't think about. But, I mean, but but things are going in that way. Yeah. My second point was that we're emphasizing violence in groups. We're emphasizing groups that, that behave in violent and kind of uncontrolled way. And as Eleanor said in her introduction, lose their concerns for other, reduce their sensitivity to guilt, remorse and self evaluation. I mean, there is a kind of dependency group, depending on what the nature of the God is. There's a God of peace. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. And people who are members of the group led by the God of peace are not violent. They, they feel they're, they're very nice to other people. Well, they're very kind under certain people. circumstances. Yeah. Like, the, you know, if you go into the um, Crusades, just, just they were wanna, very violent. Then. I just don't want to create a, a one-sided idea of what oh. basic assumptions are about. Right. They're also about, uh, they're, they're, they're broader than that. Mm -hmm. They're about, you know, they, they can be a basic assumption led by a God of love and peace. And the people in that group are extremely considerate of other people. So Yeah, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think the God of love and peace can become the Crusades. I don't think that it's just no, you're, the God you're right. of love and peace. One of the ideas that Bion had about um, basic assumptions in support of what you're saying is that whatever the predominant basic assumption is, the others are present in latent form, right. uh -huh. ready to go right. at any moment depending on what's going on. I, I say that because we, we shouldn't get the idea that we're just talking about violence being due to the presence of a basic assumption. The basics that the loss of concern for others and reduced sensitivity to guilt, remorse, and self-evaluation is due to something else called splitting, in which the group is a component of certain basic assumption ideas. But the real problem is splitting where you're good, you and your group are good. The other group over there, those people, they're bad. So, and they're not, they're not only bad, they're not even human, okay? Right. They're malevolent forces. They're agents of malevolent force rather than human beings with minds of their own, lives of their own, and families and so on. Uh, so I think the kind of violence you're, you're emphasizing here is a function of the splitting 
that is that is a component of certain basic assumption ideas. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.